Welcome everyone to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios, as always, bringing you another episode of this podcast covering the game you know and love. With just a few weeks left in the 2023 tennis season, there's so much to discuss and analyze, and I have a pair of guests to help me do just that. Tennis Channel's own Nico Pereira, the Latin American tennis expert, breaks down Ben Shelton's Tokyo title, breaking into the top 15. Pereira also discusses Gael Monfils turning back the hands of time at Stockholm, all the action in Vienna and Basel this week on the ATP Tour, and we look ahead to the Paris Masters for the men and the WTA Finals in Cancun set to start in a few days. And then I'm joined by esteemed tennis journalist Matt Futterman, formerly of the New York Times and currently spearheading the outstanding coverage of the game on The Athletic. Futterman was very generous with his time. We break down how he became a journalist in the sport of tennis, his fond memories growing up with the sport in his native New York City, covering this year's U.S. Open and some memories he had at that tournament, as well as which ATP and WTA players we should keep our eyes on. Futterman also provides an in-detail analysis of Simona Halep and the process going on with her drug suspension and the pending appeal. There's a lot to discuss on this week's episode of Tennis Channel Inside, and we start with Nico Pereira, followed by Matt Futterman. Here we go. All right, now joining us on Tennis Channel Inside, and back again, my friend and yours, coming onto the show late October, it's Nico Pereira, the former pro, and I won't give the credit to the network that said this, but I was watching Wimbledon. And I heard a prominent broadcaster say, when I need Latin American advice, I go to Nico Pereira. So the expert, welcome back. <laughs> Hopefully it's not only Latin American <laughs> tennis, but, but yes, I think I, ha I have a little line or two in the water down there. It's good for the up-and-comers, right? We need to know these players that we hope we see more of. Uh, a lot to get to, Nico, on today's show. Uh, fall tennis, though, it's always a, it's always a hot button, right? That the season might some say might drag on. There's a lot of stops. There's lulls. We're in the final push, but I'm a big fan of a lot of these indoor tournaments. We don't really see a lot of these big indoor hardcore tournaments, and some areas of expertise from players like Holger Runa and, and different players that shine here. I'm a big fan of just a different variety of tennis indoor hardcore. Well, some of the players are used to that. You, you just mentioned Runa and, and, and all those guys in Scandinavian countries or countries that <laughs> rains a lot. They have a yeah. big, big advantage coming down the stretch. Some of the players come tired from the summer. I know there are some players, and I know in my case, uh, that it's not very comfortable, mm -hmm. you know, being in places that it gets dark at 3 p.m. in the afternoon, that yeah. it's cold outside, that you're just not used to that type of food. It, it, it's yeah. difficult if you're dragging the whole year, you've played uh, six, seven months, and then you come into places that you don't entirely feel at ease. It's, it's tougher to compete and to fight. We've been pretty spoiled by the very best of this era that have just been good in everything, that not even your era, but even further back, there have been special, there's been players that have shined at different parts of the year. And I think that's what we might kind of be seeing here. Um, it, it is fascinating to see all the development and the opportunities post U S open to really improve your ranking, especially if you're a young player, we have to talk about his matches in progress, but Ben Shelton wins in Tokyo last week. He's up to number 15 in the world since the U S open, since the start of the U S open, he's 13 and two. So this is someone that keeps getting better, keeps developing, still a lot of room to grow. But, Nico, we were wondering how quick it would happen. Ben Shelton's arrival into the top 15 happened quicker than I think most of us even thought. Even him. <laughs> he wasn't expecting it. Uh, it's fantastic. We didn't see it coming. We were talking about, you know, the next gen, and all of a sudden we have an ex 
gen coming <laughs> up, uh, Alcaraz and Sinner and uh, Ben, particularly since you mentioned him, it's just been great to watch him, having uh, have played with his dad for so long, uh, having followed his career since you know the college days. He wasn't even interested in tennis, Brian used <laughs> to tell me. And look at him shining now. He's a breath of fresh air. He plays with such an enthusiasm. Yeah. And, and you see him smiling on the court, mm -hmm. you know, which is something you don't see much. And, and then you see a smiling coach, father, in Brian. Of course, Brian smiles always. Yeah. It's, just a, it's just great for tennis. And in that particular case, I'm, I'm, I just enjoy mm -hmm. watching Ben play with the joy that he does. So much charisma. He played a very smart match in the quarters of that tournament against Tommy Paul. Showed grit against Marcos Caron, who had a tough loss that he's going to, you know, remember, but had, didn't play his best level, found a way to win, and then beats Karatsev in the final. And I'll ask you, Nico, what are you seeing him improve on in these last couple months? What do you see from an analyst side that he's gotten better at? Well, his serve has been always monstrous. I just feel that he's given his opponent a chance to miss from time to time. He's more solid. His return has improved tremendously. And I just think he's overall smarter when it comes to shot selection. Yes, at times he's a bit crazy because he has 40 love <laughs> advantage in the serve. He has such a trust in his serve that, that he can go wild uh, here and there. But I, I believe that his biggest improvement has been the consistency from the back. True, and the rally tolerance is another way to put it, but he's willing to stay in there a little longer. I love that he's aggressive. He gets to the net. His dad's made such a difference, and the ceiling is... It's not top 15. It's going to be even higher. Like, there's there's no limits on what this guy can do. He's playing Yannick Sinner right now as we record this. It's a tight match. That Sinner won the first set, trying to get a little revenge from him beating him a couple or a week and a half ago. But I had to mention that stat, too. Four Americans in the top 15 between Fritz, Paul, Tiafo, and now Ben Shelton. First time since 97. You'd have to go back over 25 years to have this much depth in the top 15. Pretty impressive. Yeah, back in, in the 80s, you were talking about half of the top 100 bring from America, but boy, that has changed. And as you mentioned, in the last 20 years, we've been waiting for that you know great American player, which we had in, in uh, being Big John Isner. But uh, you're looking to, to a player that wins majors. Yeah. And, and I believe we might have one in, in, in that group you just mentioned, and you can add Seb, Sebi Corden to that. I would, when we went on the show last week, we said Shelton, I said Shelton and Corda seemed like the ceiling could be, the potential could be there for those two. Still a lot of room to grow, age on their side. And the theory that you can kind of expand on from even, you know, your region of the world, Latin America, that rising tide lifts all boats. When you see a couple guys come up your same area, it's, you got no choice but to get pushed and get better. Definitely. But that it factor, mm -hmm. you know, that, that you have to mention that it takes for, for someone to to rise above the cream of the crop, which is, you know, mm -hmm. the top 20, top 25. It's going to take something and someone special, and, and I believe we have them. Yeah. Still very tough at the top. We mentioned before we started, Djokovic, Alcaraz pacing it, Yannick Sinner playing now. I did want your quick thoughts on him because Sinner has been anointed by a lot of people, myself included, as probably the next guy up. It seems like he's getting there. He won that big title. Darren Cahill's put a lot of work into him. We're seeing it pay off. But for Sinner going forward, what's the final piece, if there is one, for him to get over that hump to start being a major champion? Well, he, he, he needs a bit of luck. I think he has the game. and he, I think he's made the adjustments uh, after Darren Cahill arrived. He's going up to the net 
a lot more to finish up the points. I, I believe that is key. But consider that the three guys uh, in front of him in the rankings, including you have to mention Medvedev as well, yeah. uh, have all won majors. So he, he's the next one in line, I, yeah. I, I think. I feel that uh, he has a, a chance in all surfaces. It can happen mm -hmm. uh, in all surfaces. And, and probably because of... The other guys, you know, on the clay, Alcaraz has maybe a bit of an edge on the hard courts. Djokovic, why not on the grass? Yeah. You know, if he dares come into the net a bit more. Yeah, I mean, he's gotten to the quarters or better quarters at all majors. I think it's unfair. It's the same thing people used to say about Coco. They're saying about Pagua now. It's all, he's done everything except win a major. So we're going to judge him on that. We'll see fitness-wise, too. He's lost a lot of these long four or five-hour matches. I have no doubt that he's putting the time in to do it. But yeah, needs luck. The top three at the top are pretty exceptional players, so no shame yeah. in losing to them. But again, you know, he plays those matches because he didn't have the huge serve. He was predictable from the back. He didn't come into the net to finish up the matches. So I think those are the things that they're thinking long term. Yeah. You know, you shorten some of the matches. Instead of playing four hours, you play 245, and you give yourself a better chance moving on to and the second week of the big tournament. And you know, like working with a player, whether you're on the player side or the coaching side, Rome wasn't built in a day. You're not going to build a major champion in three weeks of practice. I know Coco and Brad Gilbert and all that happened. It's kind of disproves that a little bit but it takes time and i think the long approach is a smart one for center and these other players well coco is just an <laughs> exceptional athlete and 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 i think uh, bg is a genius when it comes to tactics and how to win ugly we, we know that but uh staying with the man uh, that we were talking about it's just a fantastic uh, time yeah. to be witnessing what we are the uh -huh. change of the guards if you will if yeah. rafa is going to come back what is he going to do what does djokovic have in store for us in the final chapters of of his career and these these new young bloods coming in and how would medvedev hold up because this guy that yeah. that's another genius right there is it the final chapters of Djokovic I'm like how long is this gonna go because he's I playing think I give yeah. him I give him uh, one two more years two years okay okay he just keeps extending his greatness yeah with that knows? guy I saw the ATP finals like lists of the players who are either going to be there or in the running and it's Djokovic and I think the next Closest guy in age is like 10 years younger. No, but the, the guy's so good. I <laughs> yeah. mean, he's he's playing the best tennis of his career right now. Look at how many, you know, majors he's won and, and, and the way he has done it. And the ones that he hasn't won. It, it, it's, look at how it, it's yeah. just crazy to think the level that the, this guy maintains. And it's, just, you know, more praise to him. It's crazy how, right, when you become an aging athlete, you're losing stuff in your physical frame, but you're gaining stuff mentally. So it's that weird two ships crossing in the night. How can I hold off, hold on to my athleticism? He's figured out a way to mask any slippage. We haven't seen it, but also like a chameleon, change his style and do things to improve his new frame and his new age and how he does it. It's just exceptional. Yeah, we'd love, love a Nim Depth interview <laughs> with him. Yeah. But he's pretty candid out there. But I'm still, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he has things up his sleeves. Yeah. He's not telling us yet. Not, can't, <laughs> yeah, a great, a great, <laughs> a great expert doesn't reveal, a great magician doesn't reveal all his tricks. I do want to give props to somebody else or a couple other people from last week. How about Gail Monfils winning Stockholm, mm -hmm. the oldest Stockholm champion? It was 12 years after he won that, his 12th title of his career. And I know the draw opened up and it wasn't the biggest gauntlet, but just for him to do it at his age, Nico, and also the injury he went through, all the stuff that's gone on, 
a remarkable story and still one of the most beloved players in either tennis tour. Yeah, just re remember last year he was off for like seven or eight months with a broken foot. And uh, he came back after being a dad uh, at his age with his game style, which is pretty demanding. <laughs> and it's just a beautiful thing to watch for a guy that has given tennis so much. Another uh, athlete that is just beautiful to watch perform and, yeah. and, and hopefully, you know, we'll have him for, for a little longer, yeah. but uh, it just gave us a great spectacle last week. You were in Paris, right, this year at the at the French Open? Were you there at all? No, no I was you not. I was going to say, that was like top five scenes, that match yes. against like It was, it was the craziest it was scene ever. But I'm, I'm a fan of his. It's good that he's able to have his send-off. Like, whatever right. happens from these next years, just not going out with an injury it's is just, special. It's, it's those guys that have the attitude towards the world that the world returns it to them mm -hmm. because he has such a great attitude, so positive. Yeah. His outlooks are always positive, and positive things come from that, and, and, and he deserves it. Makes you feel good about karma a little bit. Like to there, totally. I, I do. Yeah. How about uh, the other guy that won? How about Alexander Bublik winning a title? And dare I say, you know, he played smart winning Antwerp, a little clean even. Like, I, I wouldn't think I'd expect that, but it wasn't. The hot shots are still there. They're still, like today, he lost to Casper Ruud and broke a racket and flipped out. We get that, but in that title run, he actually played some clean tennis. Well, for a guy that said that he doesn't like to play tennis, he's having a whole <laughs> lot of fun yeah. winning, yeah. at least. Funny how that works. Yeah, I think he's matured uh, a bit. He got a taste of, of what it is. Uh, somebody maybe got in his year, and, and, mm -hmm. and he's doing things uh, a little bit cleaner, as, as you say. And he's good for tennis. Tremendous athlete. This is a guy that mm -hmm. would be, you know, highly ranked in the world in the long jump and the run yeah. uh, swimming on anything you get a feel because he, he's just a tremendous athlete everything everything seems to come easy uh, for him and he seems to have figured out a thing or two yeah i would say different cat would be a good way to put it but he's quietly had a pretty solid consistent year you know push rublev at wimbledon in that epic match and has been getting good results and maturing you know we don't you know, it's it's good to see these players develop their games mentally and physically. The player he beat in the final of that was, was Arthur Fees, who's, you know, he lost to Medvedev today in, in this tournament, but he's still progressing. He's still got a lot to work with. And I wanted to also shout out, he's made a change to his team. You know, he's got Grosjean and uh, former French champ, two-time French champ, French Open champ, Sergei Bruguera, too. So this is a guy that's taken a professional approach. He's one of the five to watch, I'd say, maybe even fewer on the shorter list of players to watch that next gen. Arthur Fees is a player that justifiably so, Nico, people are buying a lot of stock in. Yeah, career year for the 19-year-old, and uh, he has all the tools. Great athlete, son of a basketball player, and uh, made the move. Grosjean is a bit busy. He's a tournament director. He's a Davis Cup captain. He mm -hmm. has an academy in Florida. Yeah. So I don't know how much real time he's going to be yeah. working with him but Grosjean has teamed up with Bruguera before Bruguera as you know won the French Open a few times so uh, he's very well liked mm -hmm. and well regarded in France so let's see how much time right. Sergi is willing to to devote to this project uh, because Sergi also has you know other things mm -hmm. on the table so it's a tricky situation we'll see how yeah. it, how it evolves but it, there's definitely good material to work with in peace yeah the process of having you know and i know that there's a single voice theory which makes sense but having two having a partnership and having people based on availability if you have the same message i think can still work and i'm, I'm with you fees has a lot of gifts he's still growing 
it's going to be fun. Fran- France might have their guy. It was, you know, we got the generation, the musketeer generation, and now France might have the next, the next gen of a, another male player. Certainly looks that way. He's, he's, you know, he made his notice last year, but this is the year where he's really been playing yeah. on the, on the big tournament since he measures up well today. Um, he started really well, and then when Medvedev broke him at three all in the first set, Medvedev won nine, nine mm-hmm. out of the last ten games or so. But Fee's uh, body language changed a lot. That's something he's going to need to work uh, on. But considering he played in, into the finals last yeah. week, you know that right. that might have been a factor as yeah. well. I heard you and Mark Petchy on the call for that match, and it was very well put by you guys. Medvedev is not going to give you many openings. Oh. So when you have it, you have to take advantage of it. He's going to just go for the kill as swiftly as possible. It's not going to it's not going to be there that often. So any mistakes and big points could be backbreaking, and they were today. It's beautiful to watch Medvedev. It's, you know, he's so, so understated. He just doesn't give you anything. His shots are penetrating. His first serve is underrated. He's so smart making adjustments. He defends unbelievably well gives opponents yeah. a chance to miss and when they don't he goes for the winner i i really enjoy watching daniel play so more with nico Pereira here on tennis channel inside and we're into the atp schedule of basel and vienna this week and i wanted to go to vienna for a second we saw another titanic showdown between sitsipas and team yesterday sitsipas wins like he did in the match at wimbledon in their first round encounter there but for Dominic Team, and I wanted to just get your thoughts on the, on him. You know, he's at 99 in the world. His record this year is just 17 and 21. How do we assess his comeback from the injuries? It hasn't been great by his standards, obviously. Where do you put Team State of Tennis at this moment? Well, we did uh, we did that match also, and I had. Uh, the impression that his ball is coming out of his racket with a bit more pop and he always had this quality that after the ball bounced it developed tremendous speed and Mm -hmm. i saw that yesterday in the first set Mm -hmm. a couple of loose errors when he could put the set away in that tiebreaker he played really good tennis Mm -hmm. he played unbelievable tennis the crowd was there the vibration was there he must have felt good about that but big drop off after he he lost that first set and when you consider this was a guy you know that won the u.s open that has to play three out of five matches you wonder if the desire is still there that is the question he seems to be healthy a couple of shots on the backhand slice seems like it wasn't the, the, the team of all that had a good yeah. backhand slice. But all in all, I like what I saw yesterday from Dominic team, especially in front of a home crowd. Yeah, it's unfortunate for him. It hasn't happened as quick. He had a lot of injuries, as we know. Um, trying to get the reps. He's at 30 now in age-wise, so we'll see if he can keep it going next year. But you have to take advantage of the smaller tournaments, right? Because the draws aren't going to do you any favors when you're trying to get your way back up the rankings. For Sitsipas, it was a big win for him. He needs to kind of right the ship himself. He's on pace, a very eventful year on and off the court, but he's on pace to make the ATP finals if he can hold serve and win a couple more matches. But what have you seen from Sitsipas recently, and how can he thrive in the indoor hard court end of the season where he's done well historically? Well, he's just a great player. He's an awesome player with uh, you know a lot, a lot on his mind, on and off the court. Uh, I think the main 
change in his game, you know, the, the zigzagging between his father and Philip Pulsis and now his father again, is the consistency with which he runs around that forehand. That's yeah. the key for him. Uh -huh. When he's playing his best, he, you know, he, you can only find his backhand 20% of the time. You look for it because he's going to hit a forehand. It is a guy that is very physical at 6'5", but moves really well. He floats on the court. But he really needs to punish opponents with the forehand. Mm -hmm. If not, the one-handed backhand goes flimsy on him at tough times yeah. against the top opponents. Yeah, I noticed that in some of these major matches where they're, they're served especially, he hasn't been getting a lot on the one-hand backhand return. And that forehand, though, is a top five, top three in tennis right now. It's it's disgusting when it's on. You know, so, Very heavy ball. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, he's still somebody. It's crazy how long the tennis year is because Australia, finalist, made that run, gave Djokovic a little bit of concern in the final. Still time. Somebody else, as we kind of, you know, look at other matchups that happen in there, how could you not in Basel appreciate Andy Murray just continuing to fight? You know, 85-minute first set, Hanfman, he's got, you know, another match coming up here. But Murray just out there. I, I don't know anyone that I see suffer and kind of loves it in a weird way. He is a the ultimate masochist. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> Plus, good. he plays the longest matches. I just love Andy Murray to death. It's great, especially working with a guy like Petch that knows him so intimately. I get to pick his brain about it. So it's it's a lot of fun watching Andy play. Yes, that that first set was was terrific against Halfman, a, a guy that plays completely different than Murray. And it was just funny see, see to see Andy dismantling his opponent once again at his age with all of his accomplishments and, mm -hmm. and, and having yeah. the highest ranking now yeah. since uh, since he went into the, the, the right. surgery. So it, it, it's just rewarding to him. And you yeah. wonder how long he's going to keep at it. Could be a roadmap for team too, right? It's taken Murray a couple years and the ranking has gone up that it's not just a one one year, even two year process. But I love seeing Murray out there. You don't know how much longer it's going to last like Monfils. It's just great to see what Murray's accomplished. He's still out here battling. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts though on the biggest story in Basel that's on and off court. Holger Runa working with Boris Becker now came back against Kekmanovic down a set, really battled through. It was weird also, Nika, right, to see him without the hat on. I was like, yeah, I don't know if I recognize this guy without his backwards hat on, but what are your thoughts on Holger? Again, all the injuries, the issues since Wimbledon, trying to right the ship and doing it with a Hall of Famer and a multi-time major champion in Boris Becker. Strange relationship there. You know, Runa was looking uh, for, for a North Star and uh, few have shown brighter than Boris Becker in the tennis world. You know, I love to see Boris back at it uh, he's a guy that uh, we all admired immensely. He gave a lot, still giving a lot to the game. I'm very, very happy that that somebody, you know, reached out and 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 uh, brought him back in, if you will. He was doing TV, but but uh, much more prominent role if he's in charge of the camp of, of one yeah. of the top players. And Runa is a guy that wants it very bad. And if he's looking for the it factor. And there yeah. is somebody that can identify for him and, and, and yeah. help him out. Do you think, and I know it's hard to, you know, I don't want to speculate on it. We don't know what's going on with the camp and everything. But do you see areas where a young player like Holger Runa can improve, whether it's managing the schedule or the training? Because he was such a bright star end of last year, even into early this year. A lot of people would have put him over Sinner for potential to do damage in the majors. And since Wimbledon, it hasn't happened. So do you think there's areas where he can improve in managing his schedule and his training? Listen, the young generation um, has 
you know, this idea that uh, experience for some reason is not as valuable because they can get directions on the phone within seconds and, and, and find out how to how to change the oil or, or the car or something. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there's nothing like experience, you know, and somebody like Becker that has, you know, done it all, it's definitely just by his presence alone going yeah. to bring something yeah. to that camp. Uh, yeah. and, and you saw it, the backwards hat. You know, it's, it, you know yeah. how can you expect respect <laughs> if you don't respect yourself sort of thing? The, the okay. way Gilbert uh, went about uh, yeah, Roddick's visor, visor stuff off. like that. Yeah. So, so I, I see Boris's hand in that one. <laughs> Okay, well, hey, that would be that's a good intel or good. Sp- I, I would agree. It doesn't with that. make come on. It doesn't make sense if you're playing indoors to that's play true. with a hat. <laughs> that's true. Andy Murray also plays with a hat indoors. <laughs> that's so true. Wasn't thinking about that, but yeah, sometimes you need to learn how to fail and make your own mistakes. And you know, I think Holger has still so much game and so much potential to offer. He's one of the guys in the factor to do it. And and also, I just want to point out when you're the same generation, like Alcaraz is this otherworldly player. But Runa doesn't fear him because they're the same. He's just a kid he knew growing up. He's a talented player, but it's a little different because they've just known each other so long. Well, it's, it's happened through the years. Look at that Nadal-Gasquet relationship that Gasquet was better and then could never beat him. It happened to Becker with Bruno Orezar, a player that many people <laughs> yeah. might not know. It happened so many times that, that players just took off and, and their foes from the juniors were left behind. But we're talking about a guy that's top 10. So he he's right there on his heels, and anything can happen at any time. And and Holger is leaving no stone unturned. Yeah, he certainly isn't. Uh, the last thing on that I wanted to mention, the last turn, tournament result there is big props to Shevchenko beating Stan yesterday. The young Russian player could be one to watch. He's kind of had a meteoric rise from the challenger circuit to the tour. So props to Shevchenko, probably the biggest win he's had. He looks great. You know, he looks like he belongs and he, he, he feels like he belongs and he's putting in the hard work and he's, he's uh, following that road quicker than maybe he yeah. expected. But, you know, he's winning matches at this yeah. level. He's doing something right. We had some stuff on the women's side I wanted to get to before we wrap up. And uh, unfortunately, Carolina Muhova is not going to be playing in the finals. Couldn't get back. Tried everything. Wrist, arm injury not happening. So Maria Sakari gets the spot. And smart decision by her not to play in Zuha this year, this week. She's kind of figured this might happen, gets the spot, goes back to Mexico where she just won the biggest title of her career. Big opportunity for Maria to enter this really talented field and who knows, could go all the way. Definitely. I don't think, you know, she expects so much of herself and works so hard to achieve it that, you know, I believe that it's not luck. I mean, she worked for it. She deserves it. Injuries happen in this sport and uh, she was ready for it. And and why not? You know, in in that field of eight, anyone can win. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big storyline guy, you know, so this would be perfect storyline. Last person alternate in wins the whole thing. We'll see. But, you know, you're familiar with that region, obviously. It's good that, you know, Cancun doing their best to put this on, obviously, last minute, bigger issues there. But given the conditions there, the time of the year and the field, who do you think, I don't want to say is built for, but who do you think could really succeed given that the finals are played where they are? I feel that it's due to to a player that is not used to having everything fixed. You know, if you're manic about <laughs> order, 
in Latin America is not your place, <laughs> especially in an event put together in one month. <laughs> so there is going to be some issues with the locker room. There is going to be some issues with the court, with the crowd, uh, with transportation. Maybe you you never know. Although those the, the, the people organizing the event are top class. They are the best yeah. of the best, and I, I truly <laughs> feel that they are the right people to pull this off. Uh, under the circumstances, WTA was desperately looking for for a place, didn't have the economics, didn't yeah. have the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is an effort by all, and the players are going to have yeah. to put on the effort. But going back to your point, I feel that the player that adapts better to all the inconsistencies that they're going to have this week is a player with the upper hand. Well, I can... <laughs> everyone out there listening could judge their own inferences. Players that might not go with the flow, you can figure out maybe who the players <laughs> would be. I won't call them out here, but no, it's a good point. Also just wanted to add, everyone talks about these tournaments, and this is the biggest non-major of the year. The value in this tournament is immense, but it's also worth pointing out, if you don't have that major title, it means a little bit more to these players that need to prove that they can win. I'll also throw Coco in. She is somebody that obviously won the U.S. Open as a major champion now for the rest of her life. I think she wants a crack at Iga, and I think that's the one where it's like she just got beat again in, in Asia in the Asian swing. There's opportunity here, even bigger than the tournament, to get one up on your rivals. Definitely. You know, it's a, it's a new challenge and a new opportunity at the same time every week. Mm -hmm. And it is a huge tournament, yeah. and it could be a stepping stone to that number one ranking that she, yeah. she seeks. She can get know? it. So if she wins uh, a major, and on top of that, the year-end championship, you know, it, she has a mm -hmm. bigger chance if she does well at the start of the year yeah. to at any point during 2024 to be number one. It's a great field. Like yeah. you have Iga coming in, trying oh, yeah. to get the one ranking back, Sabalenka defending it, Rabakina, Coco, obviously, Vondrasova, who tore it up. Maybe Jesse Pagula gets one too. So there's a lot to like there. Um, and then, of course, on the men's side, next week is the Paris Masters. We're going to see Djokovic. We'll see about Alcaraz because that's another one with managing the schedule. Had the injuries this week, is not playing. But Djokovic, talk about knowing your body and knowing what to do, takes time off. I don't think we're expecting much of a letdown when he comes back. He's in it to win it and make these final pushes that he's made look easy and routine even. Well, the best of all times. The number say, says it, you know, and, and uh, he uh, pays homage to that. Every day he steps on the court, you might dislike his rants sometimes. You might, you know, not think his style is the prettiest, but the numbers don't lie. And every time he steps on that court, uh, or at least 99.9% .9 of the time, he, he's ready to go, 100%. Yeah. If not, he doesn't show up. It's going to be a blast. I would love to see. It's like the only thing we haven't seen, right, is Alcaraz Djokovic indoor hard in a big tournament. <laughs> so, uh, Nico Pereira, this has been a blast. Last thing i got to ask you, you're you know the man in Latin American tennis, which I mentioned, but the exhibition circuit, you play a driving force in a lot of these cool and exciting events in a region of the world that doesn't have a lot of tennis. What was it like with the Venus Williams-Monica Puig So Puig's last match, the crowd atmosphere looked amazing, putting that on and just that experience. It's awesome. You know, I, I, I come from Latin America. I try to pay my dues. I try to pay it forward, try to help people from my part of the world and encourage tennis as part of that. And, of course, it's, it's a job. It's a business. Uh, try to take, uh, you know, big names and, and good spectacles to Latin America. We took uh, Kyrgios and... and uh, Cameron Nori to Mexico in 22. Uh, and then this year we took, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Monica and Venus. Venus is such a, you know, she's 
I, I'm in love with her. She's awesome. <laughs> she, yeah. She's great. Such a p inner peace. She did everything that was asked of her and more. And Monica at home in Puerto Rico, she's a huge, huge star. She's the darling of that place. And uh, we sold out 15,000 seats, which isn't, isn't easy in Latin America. Uh, but the, my local partners did a great job. And the, the, the crowds just showed up. We had Tito Trinidad. We had oh, all, okay. the, all, the, all big, right. the big reggaeton guys in the house. It, it was a blast. Before, during, and after the, the exhibition, it was a grand time. I thank the people of Puerto Rico, and I look forward to keep doing more events in Latin America. I know. I know you got some stuff that's not official official yet, but I know you're working the phones and we're going to get more <laughs> more and more events. But it's exciting. It is good to see. Yes. Look, every region, this is such a global game, right? Let's bring tennis to the masses in areas that don't have the biggest and obviously the support's there. So. And it's fun. It's yeah. it's a lot of fun and, and the, the, the f people don't understand if you don't go to Latin America. Because of all the European immigration we had <laughs> after the wars, there is a lot... A lot of tennis fans down there. It's just great. Yeah. And if you don't live it, you don't believe it. That's awesome. Well, the last thing I have for you uh, before I let you go, this has been a blast. Uh, any players you think just on the radar, Latin American players, men or women, do you have any names we should kind of monitor? Oh, no, that's a tough one. <laughs> I hate one. to put you on the spot. That's a tough one because it, yeah. it is a lot of pressure on them. Yeah. And and our, our sport down in Latin America is suffering because of the, the shift in the economics of tennis. Right. It's so expensive to play a year on tour. Yeah. And now the players don't have that leap right away from the juniors to the pros. You get you know, to your physical top at 23, 24, that's five, six years of, mm -hmm. of expenses that in Latin America yeah. uh, filters a, a lot of uh, boys and girls. So, so I don't want to put the pressure okay. we can, yeah, on we them, can, but, yeah. but, but there is, there yeah. is, there is some names and, and uh, we're counting on bias to keep doing well and Schwarzman to come back. Unfortunately, the Potro couldn't do it. Yeah. You know, some of the girls are playing well in Colombia. So, so hopefully we'll have uh, more names coming up with the tides like you say, down okay. there. Yeah, I know. I, I'd love to see it. And it's good to see players like Del Potro, Schwartzman, give back like yourself. Right. Just, you know, pay their dues and pay it forward. Well, Nico Pereira, always a blast. We'll be pushing hard to the end of 2023. Always a pleasure talking to the Latin American tennis expert here on Tennis Channel Insight. And thanks for coming on. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you very much, Mitch. Huge thanks to Nico Pereira for appearing on Tennis Channel Inside In yet again. And uh, props to him for the outstanding and inspiring work he's doing in his native Latin America, really paying it forward and growing the game in his homeland. Uh, we'll see what happens with the plans. I know Nico's always got a lot of them up his sleeve. It's always a joy to talk to him. Also wanted to point out Yannick Sinner did pull off the win against Ben Shelton as we finished up recording, so he evens the head-to-head -head rivalry 1-1. That won't be the last those two play. It was another close match, 7-6, 7-5. So, again, a big win for Yannick Sinner as he looks to finish his season with a bang, already qualifying for the ATP Tour Finals. And now it's my pleasure to talk to one of the most respected writers in all of tennis. It's Matt Futterman of The Athletic, formerly of The New York Times. He's covered the sport for a few decades, and he's really done a great job establishing a reputation as one of the most thorough reporters in the game. Futterman was very, very pleasant in his conversation, talking about how he fell in love with the sport of tennis, what it's been like covering the U.S. Open and other tournaments around the globe, and which players we should keep our eyes on on both tours with a lot of young, exciting men and women ready to take over the sport of tennis. Here's Matt Futterman now 
on Tennis Channel Inside In. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios as we go into the month of late October into November. A lot of exciting action in the tennis calendar still unfolding. Got a special guest on this week's show, a premier tennis journalist previously at the New York Times, now spearheading some excellent coverage at The Athletic. He's written a couple books as well. First time joining the show, big fan of his, Matt Futterman. Matt, welcome to the show. Excited to talk a little tennis with you. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. It's a real uh, honor to be here. Big fan of your podcast. I appreciate that a ton, Matt, and the feeling is mutual as we gear into the tennis calendar and the discussions of your coverage this year and in previous years. I want to know, as I do with all the first-time guests, your story and how you got involved into being a premier tennis journalist. Where did the itch come from for you to become a member of the media and then someone that's kind of spearheading tennis coverage? How did that process work for your career? Well, originally, I mean, you have to go back to when I was a kid. I'm sort of a child of the tennis boom in the 1970s, uh, growing up in in the suburbs of New York City in Larchmont, New York. And, you know, I became a tennis head because of all the usual characters of Borg, McEnroe, Connors, Gerolaitis, Everett, Austin, Navratilova. Um, and, but, but I do think it sort of go, it's, it, it sort of is somewhat overlooked about how much that area felt at that moment like you were sort of at the center of the tennis universe i mean people think florida and california for obvious reasons because they produce it produces so many good players and now it's sort of those are the sort of the the heartbeats of the sport um at least in this country you know but at the time i mean i was a kid in 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 the late 70s and you know like McEnroe was you know, a kid from Douglas and Queens, whose father was a lawyer in New York, just like my father, who, you know, he knew, you know, he knew John McEnroe Sr. because my father was a corporate lawyer in New York, just like McEnroe's father was, or they were both partners at sort of not rival law firms, but law firms that were in the vicinity of each other. Um, Mm -hmm. So there was that, I mean, Gerolaitis lived on Long Island. These two guys, the U.S. Open was 10 miles from my house. Um, It it was all just incredibly familiar. Uh, So so it was familiar. It was close. Like I had a cousin who was older who would, you know, end up in Studio 54 at 3 o'clock in the morning with Gerolaitis sometimes. He would always tell stories about he would be leaving Studio 54 as Gerolaitis and his crew would just be coming in um, in the middle of the night. And, uh, you know, so those are so that's how I sort of really sort of got the itch and played a lot of tennis growing up as well. And New York being the mecca, you know, on and off court, as you just said with that last story. But there was and there still is a reverence for New York City in the open. But you hear guys of a certain era, guys and girls of a certain era, and they talk about how just important and special that time was. It makes a lot of sense. And I also think your story is interesting, too. You're one of the you're one of the last, I'd say, like original old school journalists. You're not that old, but like the media landscape has kind of changed. So I'm just curious your perspective on being an old school journalist at a time when the climate and, you know, just coverage and how we access news is changing. Well, I don't, I mean, when you say old school, I, I hear the word old and I get like a little <laughs> shiver up my spine. So I, I promise you, you're never going to, yeah, you, you're never going to want to hear that part of it. Um, I, I think you're using it. I'm going to take it as a compliment. 
Uh, yeah. You know, I'm a thorough and a very careful journalist. I approach, you know, I approach my stories like I'm looking for a handful of a handful of things in every story I write, and that's you know, narrative, character, edge, tension, and I report the hell out of them. And it, it, that's sort of how I go about my work. I I will say I don't know if that makes me old school or just thorough and you know there's a number of people a lot younger than me who follow those same formulas who are who are really really good and who are also i guess what you would call is is old school but you know it's it's if i i do you know i do if if what you're talking about is you know well reported thorough stories that's that's it that that is that is how i like to think of my work yeah, it's definitely a compliment. Just want to clear that up. And I think it's good, too, that we're in an era where, and, and there's good to it, obviously. Players are taking control of their own media. They've had their, they have their own podcasts, their own columns, their own you know, social media, getting their story out there. There's still a very valuable place and need for thorough journalists to tell the stories in an unbiased way because, you know, like I could tell my story, you could tell yours. We're going to have our natural biases in there. Somebody coming in and doing a thorough job reporting is still necessary. That's Kind of what I was wanting to get, especially with tennis now with so many exciting and fascinating storylines. I will say I've never been a columnist. So that and and that and that sort of vein of journalism, which is great. There are a lot of columnists I love and I respect, you know, because they're so good at saying their point of view has never come that naturally to me. I mean, what my, my new editor at The Athletic was sort of telling me it was he was giving me notes on one of my earlier stories and he said can we you know can you give me a couple graphs here on what you think of this that's important to me and you know i haven't done very much of that in my career i've written a few personal essays so what you could call columns i guess but i don't really have takes you know mm-hmm. what I, I there's a lot of takes out there these days yeah. and that's not really you know, that's not really my bag. Um, I, I would much rather, part of it is, like, honestly, part of it is just skepticism, not only about things I hear, but also about things I think. You know, I'm someone who, I'll come to a conclusion, then I'll immediately try sort of talk myself out of it and give the other side of the argument. And so I, I also, you know, and I, I also just think there's like a lot of takes out there and I like not being that person, especially, especially when I'm, you know, when you're around these players, there's no one, there's no one who's going to come after me and say like, you know, you shredded me in, in that, in that column you wrote, because I don't really do shredding. Like if you yeah. act terribly and I find out terrible things about you, then I'm going to write about it. But I'm not, I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not ripping people, especially if they don't play well or something like that. That's the beauty of tennis, too, is, you know, I don't consider myself an expert, but they can always prove you wrong by winning a match. And then I'm always evolving. Like, well, I got that one wrong. You know, there's opinions and I'll try to base some stuff on research as you do. But the players, they win a match. We were the first to say, look, we got that one wrong. They they proved a lot of people wrong. and We've seen that. So I I wanted to get to that. And I want to segue into the U.S. Open because that's your home tournament. That's something that's, you know, an event that's held a lot of special and prestige in your life. But this last year, and it was good, you know, kind of getting into this coverage, Matt. It's good to have a sense of normalcy after the pandemic, after not everyone here, the fans not being here. What were your memories and what was your experience like this year as it felt like we had our first real U.S. Open in a couple of years? 
yeah, this year was just it was a weird tournament in the in the sense that there weren't really very many memorable matches, but it was a great tournament mm-hmm. at the same time. A lot of that, I think, is because of the two champions, Coco and Novak, who did just incredible things. Uh, you know, I'll start with Coco because I have a father of three girls who are just absolutely mad Coco fans. And so, I mean, I, the, the funny story is, you know, probably the, the moment when they thought my, you know, career was coolest was... I think it was at last year's U.S. Open. She, uh, maybe it was her quarterfinal match or or fourth or it was a fourth round match where she hit some great shot and she did. She like moved her fingers across her throat, almost like, and all of a sudden it went a little. There was this thing on Twitter that she had done a throat slash. You know the thing that's very. You know you don't do that. Like in the NFL, you can get thrown out of the game if you do that. So, you know and. She came to the press conference after, and I asked her about it, and she was like, "What are you talking about? That's like my favorite singer, City Girls, you know, Miami City Girls." Like, can't remember the name, and I, and I had the same reaction as you know I'm saying now. Now, and she's like, "You know," and I said, "Coco, I'm like a fifty-something guy, like I'm boring, like I have no idea what you're talking about." Right. And the clip of that like went kind of viral, and it was like I got home that night, and my girls were like, "Oh, Coco slayed you today!" Or so. That's funny. And it was all over TikTok, and so, um, so yeah, I don't know how we got got onto that, but that was. No, but, I, you know, I, I so my just... daughters are huge fans of Coco, yeah. and and you know I could just feel it every day in the tournament. You could feel in the city, everybody was asking me about Coco every day. When is she playing again? Did you see this? And she just like captivated that tournament in a way that sometimes players do. Uh, and then, you know, Novak was just Novak uh, and, and doing and doing Novak things uh, yeah. from first ball to the last one. Yeah, the Coco story I have is is not quite like that. We were in like a shoot with her for Tennis Channel and talking about interest. And she mentioned, well, I'm, it was in San Diego. She's like, I got to go to the, the Comic-Con thing and I got to meet some of my heroes my favorite twitch streamers and right. you know these are people in there we're in their like 30s and we're just like we don't know who the, like this I is a new no idea who you're talking about <laughs> miami city girls yeah. was, i think the name of the yeah. was i think the name of the group and yeah. um you know yeah but, and they're great i just said they're, they're not you know they're not in my it, it, not in my oeuvre i can you know i can i can go deep with brad gilbert on you know classic <laughs> cl- on his uh, on musical taste or even yeah. with ega who actually has a like a real card sort of classic even, rock itch um, he just still reads books like she reads actual books like she's an old soul for her age i mean she's got some cool old school interests so yeah i yeah. got in a big argument with her about the great gatsby because she was like she she said she told me she didn't like it because it was too short and i i said ego like that's the beauty of the great gatsby it's the perfect it's you know 194 pages and there's like not an extra word in it but, but you know so, but she was like, yeah, but I, I need something more. So, I mean, God bless her for having great opinions. Um, Coco has that, opinions. yeah. Coco has that star appeal. She's got that crossover appeal too, where you, and I'm sure you've experienced, like I have the non-tennis fans are reaching out like, man, this, I got to see this Coco match or this is an exciting player. And you're, yeah. You know, it's, 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 thing. It, it, it's great to see. And it's, and it's, it's just kind of, some players have this sort of like magical power of, mm-hmm. and, and of, you know, they take you on the journey with them. 
mm-hmm. um, Andy Murray takes you on the journey with him. Bianca Andrescu, like I will always go, I always like am circling her match on a draw sheet because I love watching Bianca because I know like I'm just gonna feel like I'm I'm the co-pilot with her. Uh, you know, you just like that's it. That's how you sort of feel. Um, I don't know that Federer has so many outrageously incredible qualities. I don't know that I ever felt like I was on the journey with him. I felt, you know, I think he sort of felt like he was like on another planet than everybody else. Whereas Rafa, I do think you you do yeah. get sort of put in, in put in the seat with him. It's just a it's just a different way that that people a different different thing that people give off, give off on the court and the way they go about their matches. And Coco, you certainly you certainly get into it with her. There's no question. With Federer, it's like you're watching an artist in motion. You're just you're watching a genius at yeah, work. Yeah, it's <laughs> magical. I mean, it was the same. I, I I think it was you know there was this sort of a similar thing with with Tiger Woods. It was just he was sort of doing things. That's the old Jack Nicholas lines or Arnold Palmer line about or somebody's line. I think about Jack Nicholas if he plays a game with which I'm not familiar. Um, <laughs> yeah. I forget who I forget who it was who said that. Uh, it's it's embarrassing because I've, I've known it. I've known exactly who said that at times. But yeah, anyway. Maybe it'll come before we wrap this up. We still got some time here. I, I did want to get your take on some of the pieces you've written for The Athletic recently, you know, and highlighting some of the young players that are on the rise in both the ATP and WTA. Now, some are more common than others. You, you really obviously know what you're talking about because you were going down, you know, five, six deep with players that might not be as noticed. So on the ATP side, you got Ben Shelton, obviously, we've seen what he's done. Sebastian Corda in that American class right there with him. Uh, Arthur Fees, Jack Draper, Yuri Laheka. Any of those players in particular, and this is your chance to maybe speak more about them. Now, any anything else you wanted to add, players that you think of that group or maybe others that are ones to watch for 2024 and beyond that are going to theoretically have a rise that we should be paying attention to? I, I do think Arthur Fees is like, the, is like if you're going to a tournament and he's in the tournament, go to his match. Like, mm. you know, circle that one and go to his match. A friend of mine had, had that experience at the Open. She, like, she texted me that, like, the morning, and she's like, where are you? you know, what should I go do? What, what should I go see? And I was like, just go sit on, he was on court 12 or whatever it was, court 14. I was like, go to court 14 watch Arthur Fee. She's like, Arthur who? Because she hadn't heard of him. And I was yeah. like, why? And I said, you'll see. And like four games in, she sends me a note. She's like, I get it. And, you know, yeah. he just, like the ball explodes off his racket. He's a lightning bolt running around the court. His movement is there. His eyes are alive. Um, and he's like, he's young. He's raw. And but he is just an absolutely great watch uh, in a way mm-hmm. that, you know, even that some players who are also young and probably better, maybe better than he is or, or more proven at this point than, than him. Mm-hmm. They're just a different watch, but he is yeah. not, to, he, he is someone that like, I, I, you know, if, if he can, he could become a, just a really, really big star in, in, in that crossover way that we were talking about previously. We had the same reaction watching him for the first time, and he's shown a lot of grit in winning some of these matches like a veteran. It hasn't just been the hot shots. Like He's he's figured some stuff out and developed just in the last six months, so he's one to watch for sure. You know, the Americans and Shelton's into the top 15 now. Corda's, you know, got healthy again. Seems like he's right. 
Matt, I, I think with them, the thing I wanted to talk to you about is they just seem like different breeds of athletes. And I know tennis player athletes are, are exceptional athletes, some of the best in the world. But when I watch Corda and, Shel- Corda and Shelton play, I see them as different freakish athletes for a tennis court that maybe the game's not used to. I, I, I do think you're right. I think, and I think it's especially noteworthy about the other sports that they played growing up. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, even though Corda only played hockey until he was 11, um, I, I think there was some value to that, especially because he was play, he was playing on a you know he was playing on a little junior club team, and and he has some friends I think were in the NHL. Like he like he, he yeah. knew some like good players, so he was at a pretty high you know he was at a pretty high <laughs> level for his age group. And you know you also saw Shelton. You know Shelton played football, and whatever. You know, whatever your pursuit is, uh, whatever sport you're, what I'm covering, you know, the value of playing other sports and not specializing too early, you know, it, it, it cannot be overestimated. And I think you even see that. Look, you see it with you know, Djokovic is a terrific skier. There's no question. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it, you would, like, I, I would love to. I'm a big skier myself, not nearly as good as I'm sure Djokovic and Yannick Sinner are, but I would love to see. You know, I would love to go down a mountain with those guys and just see yeah. how incredible, what, you know, what incredible right. balance right. they are. Because you know, I once did a story in the winter covering the Winter Olympics about who the best athletes were at the Olympics, and and I was asking all the different athletes and coaches and things like that who they thought, and they pretty much came down that it was that it was probably the downhill skiers were the best athletes. And I think it was, I think it was largely because of their balance. And um, so, so yes, I I do think what you, what you say is, 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 is correct. That it's, it's, there's something else that they bring, that they bring Mm -hmm. to it. Tommy Paul though, I think is a pretty good baseball player. Um, Yeah. I think that was right. I think he mentioned that. Too. Yeah, he, may, yeah. he definitely mentioned it to me. He was he, he was pretty good. I think. I mean, and, and and you look at him, and you look at his quick hands, and I, it, it, he's someone like you. You know, he just he just has the. You know, he kind of looks like a baseball player too. Um, yeah. With his eyes, you can sort of really picture him in a batter's box with you know yeah. with two outs and two on yeah. in, the, in the in the eighth inning. Could see him at shortstop, you know, making some dynamic plays at short. I think he's got those those quick movements. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned. Uh, I just wanted to say before we move on to the women here, uh, another couple players. One you mentioned, one you didn't, and they're kind of tied together. Ethan Quinn coming up on the pro game, starting his pro journey, and then Alex Mickelson, who was going to follow him to Georgia, but had some pro success and decided to turn pro. So those would be some Americans to kind of look out for Quinn you highlighted though Matt in the sense that he's starting his journey he's trying to strike while the iron's hot there's no right time to turn pro so it always is a gamble he decided to take that move now yeah I don't know that I agree with you there in terms of there's there's no right time to turn Mm. pro um you know Jennifer Capriati turned pro too early like yes there was no one else for her to beat but but you know that didn't turn out but I mean you look at the you look at the results. Tommy Paul turned pro at the wrong time, and, and that's not me saying that. That's Tommy saying that. Um, he was miserable. He was miserable. Didn't get great results. Wasn't ready to be a professional. So, uh, you know, Ethan Quinn turned, you know, turned pro when he did, largely because a couple of points went his way. 
if he doesn't win that NCAA finals match and he saved match points in order to get there, he, it's very unlikely that he actually turned pro, but he, but he won that match. He's going to get a wild card into the U S open and gets wild cards into other tournaments. And there was a bunch of money in it for him and he took it. And um, look, you there are certain, there are certain people, Ethan Quinn's age, Arthur Feast being one of them who don't really look, that age, you know, that 19, 18, 19, 19, 19 years old now. Ethan Quinn looks like he's that age. You know, LeBron James did not look like he was 19 years old when he was 19 years old. He had a different right. sort of body. I, you know, I, I, I worry about any decision that is made on the basis of a tennis point or two or no, even I, four going your way. Yeah. It may turn out great. He may win the U.S. Open next year and have a meteoric rise the way uh, the way Shelton did after he won the NCAAs. And if he does more power to him, but I am keeping my eye on that to see, to see where it goes and if it works out. We're with Matt Futterman here on tennis channel inside in that was a lot of good Intel on the ATP players that are rising to watch on the young side. I'd ask you the same for the women because you wrote a, an outstanding piece on that as well. Obviously not going to throw Coco in there because she's already established as a teenager, but Mira Andreva, the 16-year-old into the top 50, American and NCAA champ Peyton Stearns, Alicia Parks, Quinn Wins-Zang, who's already knocking on the door of the top 10, and some others. So asking that same question, who on the women's side should we really be digging deep and looking out for? Well, certainly Andreva, you know, because she really is 16 uh, and the most sort of unpredictable way. Um, I mean, I give her... I give her full, not benefit of the doubt is the wrong is the wrong phrase. But if I was if I'd been on the six, uh, on the Grand Slam tennis court when I was sixteen and things weren't going my way, I probably would I, I probably wouldn't have had much composure about it either. So whether it was with Coco and making the mistake or swatting the ball or with uh, Madison Keys when the racket left her hand, um, you know the umpire said she threw a racket and that co- got, you know, cost her a point or. Uh, whether it slipped out of her hand, it's, you know, yeah. it, it will debate it forever. But these things happen when you're a teenager. And mm-hmm. that's what's great about watching her. And she's just, she is a beautiful player to watch. She has, she has so much raw talent. And, yeah. you know, Coco talked, I think it was last year. She said, her mother had said to her, you know, just be patient. You don't have your grown woman strength yet. You'll know it when you get it. You know, Mira Andreva does not have her grown up strength yet when she gets her grown up strength uh she's going to be yeah. she's going to be something it's, something to watch out for it's scary to think cuz she is pretty strong already but i agree there's still a lot of development there and if she's this good as that raw unmolded clay what's the ceiling like and it's scary to think about cuz she's already notched some pretty big wins uh the americans you mentioned i mean alicia parks has some serious weapons has been rounding into form herself and I love watching Peyton Stearns play because maybe to steal a, a phrase from another sport, like I'm a big hockey fan as well, she's got some jam out there. Yeah. She's always fighting. She's passionate. And I would just like that approach. I think that's going to serve her well as she continues to improve. Right. She's not um, – I mean, there was a phrase that I'm big – you know, it was even though I covered them for a while uh, and I'm much less of a fan as, than I was before I covered them, but I was, grew up a Yankee fan. Um, and then – Covering Joe Torre was really interesting. He's a really thoughtful, fascinating guy. Yeah. And he had this phrase that he used to say about young players. 
he used to say he's not afraid of the field. And it's sort of really, in ca- and this is what he would say about, you know, a minor league player that, we, that would get called up and he would, and he, and Tory was great. Like guy would get mm-hmm. called up from, you know, from AAA. He would get off the bus at three o'clock. Tory would have him in the starting lineup at seven thirty. I mean, like he, he just, he wanted to see like, you know what, yeah. who are you? Let's see, let's see who you are. Let's see how you react to this. Uh, yeah. And, you know, if you pass the test, he would say he's not, he's, he's not afraid of the field. And that's sort of how I feel about Stearns seeing her. Uh, it's just a sense you get that she did that. Yeah. You know, she loses matches. She does, but it's not because it doesn't appear that it's ever that the moment is too big for her. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she loses matches. She loses third sets. Yes, that happens, but she doesn't seem to freeze up in a way. And like I said, she's, she's just a gritty, great watch. But I also think that in saying that she's a really great ball striker. She has, mm-hmm. a, I mean, she's going to only get smarter um, on the tennis court and she's already pretty darn smart. She was a, I thought she was a much different player uh, in the U S open than she was at Indian Wells. So, um, and she I mean, she did. She won. She beat Ostapenko in in the French Open, and yeah. you know, on clay. And she, I, I, there's like a handful of times she had played on red clay in her life. Certainly mm-hmm. not at that level. And I think that just shows you like how adaptable uh, she can be. Yeah, and that Indian Wells, the player you mentioned earlier, you like Bianca Andreescu. That was a heck of a match. Like I saw some of it in person, and I was marveling at oh, you were, i was there yeah i was there yeah. as well and it was just it was an absolute slugfest right it, it was, was seen you had american canadian fans you had a lot of energy it was good i, I loved it i thought oh, and, yeah terrific it, it, yeah it was just terrific to terrific to watch and that was the first time where i thought like wow this this is a college player who is not afraid of like this and it yeah. was loud. It was kind of. It was kind of cool that night. It was, I mean, there was a lot that you could have. And Bianca Andreescu, playing pretty darn good tennis, was on the other side of the net. And you know, she was she was sort of right there with her. I wanted to ask you about another piece you wrote. It's the Coco Golf piece in terms of her winning a Slam and what that means and, and the pressure she's going to face going forward as a teenage Slam winner. And you did a good job highlighting that it's not a guarantee this goes great afterwards we know coco's makeup and how she's handled this with her incredible maturity but you listed a lot of players that unfortunately did kind of peak when they win that first slam looking at it from both perspectives historically and coco individually how do you see this outlook going as you use history as a reference point well i can tell you um i'm gonna i'm gonna rely on my uh, rely on my reporting and the people who are smarter than me namely chris everett and tracy austin (laughs) who both were Teenage Slam champions. And you know, Tracy said it was like the greatest thing that ever happened to her because she's like, I now, I felt like I, I felt like I had the keys to the lock. And, you know, I was never going to have to answer that question in my, again, like, could I win a slam? Yeah, I could win a slam. Now, next question. And I know, not only do I, it, it, can I win a slam, but I know how to do it. It was funny in that conversation. She said, you know, the thing that, the thing that I often think gets overlooked, you know, this is 40, you know, going on 40 <laughs> years later. Uh, she said, I beat Chrissy and Martina back to back in that tournament. And I don't think anybody actually remembers that. She said, that was pretty impressive. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, actually, 
Tracy, <laughs> you know, point taken. That was impressive. So um, I think I included that in the story. But so she thought it was re- re- going to be really, really empowering. And I think Chrissy did too. And I, and I, and I do think it, it, it is going to be particularly empowering for Coco. And I would say that largely because I think Coco, even though she won that slam, she, I think she still thinks she's just got a long way to improve. I think she knows she's going to get stronger. I think she believes she can get better. I think she said, she, I think she, she put it last year. Cause I asked her the question. I was like, I was in Australia. I think I asked her how, like how much of who you're going to be are you right now? And mm-hmm. I think her answer was about 60. I think it, it was funny because it was, it was almost the same as what Juan Carlos said about uh, Carlitos, <laughs> which was that he was about to, at, at like 65% of his capabilities. And she said that too, not uh-huh. necessarily referencing him, but she said like, I, I, you know, I think I'm probably around there. She said, because if you look and she was very analytical about it, she said, if you look at where people are winning their first slam, she's like a lot of them, it's between like 21 and 26. She's like, so I actually have some time. And I right. think, and that sort of seems to be, those seem to be the peak years of female mm-hmm. tennis players these days. So it's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think in a weird way, the presence of Igas Fiantek is going to help Coco because she's like, we're not expecting Coco to go on this reign where she just now takes over women's tennis because Iga's there. Iga's still unimproved it in Asia in their last match as the hammer in their head to head. There's still this, there's still this great player for Coco to chase, measure herself up against and improve that rivalry. I do expect Coco to get a few more on her, but Iga's still there still, in my opinion, going to be, you know, until proven otherwise, especially the French knocked off her mantle. So I think it's great. And I think we're starting to get Matt, some more dynamic rivalries at the very top of the women's game. I really would love to see them play another time in Paris specifically. I mean, I know that's Iga's wheelhouse and she rules it there, but people forget how good. I don't think people forget. Actually, I think people know, but they get reminded every year of how good Coco can be on clay you know, and especially if she seeks playing with this this sort of new strategy, I mean, the the you know getting the yeah. shape onto her shots could really work in clay, and you know the ball just it, it sort of the same thing with Iga, it sort of pops right into her strike zone, um, uh. and it's just sort of like she's just she's built to chase, she's built to run all yeah. day. So I do hope that like that is one if I could put that match in one place next year i would i would love to see it on in rolling garros well wrapping up here with matt futterman a couple more things writer for the athletic outstanding tennis coverage there um just going forward with the you know still developing story with simona Halep, and this is where we put the serious hat on for this discussion you know there is an appeal that came out today that she's going to be appealing the suspension this is a, a huge fight the fight of her life as you put it you know, because essentially her career is probably going to wind down if it's upheld. Covering this story and then just the next steps, what should we be aware of as this process continues to play out? Halep fighting a drug, char- a performance-enhancing drug charge against her as she tries to get back on the court and get this reversed. Well, first thing I would say is, you know, it's unfortunate about how little we can be aware of with this. One complaint I have as a reporter who thinks, you know, uh, you know, sunshine is the best disinfectant. Unlike in an American court, 
the filings in this process are confidential. I don't know why. Um, maybe they think it's to protect the privacy, but when you get to the court of arbitration for sport, there's already been a ruling. It's, it's, I, I think it's, you know, a bad system. I like things to happen out in the open. I know if I were a defendant in case, I think I would want everything to be public and out in the open because I think it sort of guarantees that the authorities who pretty much always have the leg up in these situations have to behave to a certain standard and meet a certain standard, which is the standard of the public. Um, so, you know, that, that is, that's a challenge. I have a lot of, one thing I do have a good bit of experience on is covering doping cases. Um, and I, I think people should just be aware that, you know, this is not your typical doping case. This is not necessarily an open and shut case. Um, that there are a lot of nuances in this one. I mean, you know, look, the Russia, the Russia Olympic doping scandal, like there's no, there's no nuance in that case. Like they had, they had a, you know, they had a state sponsored doping system for, you know, the better part of a decade, you know, they get caught red handed. There's diagrams of a building that they rearranged in Sochi. And it was, it was just so strange because I'm, I was in Sochi at that Olympics and they're winning all these medals and we're, we were looking at each other, like reporters were looking at each other, like, this is like, this isn't real. Like this is, we knew it. We knew they were cheating. They had won like two gold medals and four years ago. And all of a sudden they had won, you know, 20 or whatever it was. It was ridiculous. You can't do that. So, um, but you know, that's like a very black and white case. I mean, like Lance Armstrong, there were bags of blood in the refrigerator, like, you know, that, that, that his teammates were all testifying to, you know, this deals with her levels of her, her blood. Um, you know, they were, it's, it's a numerical algorithm. Her actual levels were, were actually within readings that were previously done. So there's an argument on the science about that. Uh, there's an argument on the trace amounts of roxatostat that were found in her supplement, um, whether that's enough to get to the levels that were found in her urine, but those levels in her urine were estimated levels. They're not, so Mm -hmm. there, there are places here where, you know, this is, this is a real case. This is not, you know, what Putin would call, you know, Western conspiracy. I want her to have a fair trial. Um, it's again, from the outside, you don't know what to believe. You just want to give everyone the benefit of the doubt and let this play out. But there's a lot at stake here, which is why this is such an important process. So I, I'm like you in the sense that I want to clean, clean up the sport as much as possible, but you know, we want to make sure we get this right. That's all I'm saying. I was a fan of Simona Halep's and we'll see where this goes, but right. Look, I don't, you know, you don't want, you don't want cheaters in the sport, but you do want a fair process. You know, you know, we all, we, we believe in a system of due process. It's just what we were raised with. Everybody Mm -hmm. deserves it. I mean, like very basic things, every, every defendant deserves, uh, you know, deserves a lawyer. Like Mm -hmm. we know that, you know, there's a sort of basic stuff. Um, to be in favor of a fair process is not to be supportive of, of, of doping, but um, it's, it's, you want it. And like I said, I do think that like the more openness there could be in processes like this, I think that could really improve the sport a great deal. One year she hasn't played, see if she is able to come on, on the court soon. Uh, Matt Futterman, this has been a blast. Last thing, what do we have to look forward to from your coverage on the athletic as we 
gear into 2024 with some big storylines and big matches already coming down the pike. Yeah, well, we'll certainly be at all the uh, at, at all the big tournaments. You know, certainly being Australia, I'll be in I'll be in Torino um, next month. Uh, not in Cancun, not in Cancun next week. Um, actually, running the New York Marathon uh, on the same day as the final. Um, just the, so the, that and the <laughs> scheduling didn't line up with some other things. But I yeah. am covering it. I'll be covering that the WTA finals remotely. I was just working on a preview story. Uh, talking to David Witt, talking to Brad Gilbert earlier. Um, but yeah, we'll be at all the, we'll be at all the big tournaments and have very intense cover, you know, very intense coverage and really all the coverage that readers got used to seeing in the New York times has just shifted over to the athletic. Awesome. Well, and I just want to say David Witt, one of my favorite coaches, just one of the best to talk to. It's, it's he's great. Yeah. He's, uh, he keeps his cool. You know, <laughs> is that guy, is, is that guy ever loses temper, you know, or ever no. get ruffled? Um, you know, it's, 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 it's amazing how calm and cool yeah. he is. Uh, even after you, you run into him after like the most intense three set match. And, uh, he says, you know, he'll say something like, yeah, pretty fun out there. Uh, and, and Matt, you mentioned it. I was going to spoil the surprise. I was going to mention on the way out, any advice for marathon runners as an avid, as an avid marathon runner yourself or people that are thinking about it, what the value you can get out of running an actual marathon. Well, is. in terms of run, in terms of advice is start slowly and slow down from there, um, is the best advice you can give. And, you know, but in terms of what the main lesson is obvious which is, you know, you can only run, there's only one way to, way to run a marathon, which is one step at a time. Um, you have to run the mile you're in and focus on that. And, you know, you can't be worried about mile 24 and mile four because you have to get to mile 24. Uh, and, you know, I think that's, that's sort of a pretty good metaphor for how you have to go about life. Um, yeah, sort of go through, go through each step. That's very impressive stuff, what you've been able to do as a marathon runner and uh, good advice there at the end. Matt Futterman, you can check him out on The Athletic, uh, covering tennis at all the big events. Thanks so much for coming on Tennis Channel Insight. And as I mentioned, big fan of yours. So we'll have to do this again sometime in the near future. But thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Keep up the great work. Uh, like I said, big fan of it. And uh, I'll be listening. Thanks to both guests, Nico Pereira and Matt Futterman, for making it a very fun show, offering their insight, their knowledge, being very gracious with their time. It's always a pleasure to talk to some prominent members of the tennis community and to learn a thing or two. So thank you again, Nico Pereira. Thank you again, Matt Futterman. And thank you, everybody out there, for listening to Tennis Channel Inside In, which is found on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, tennis.com slash podcast. And if you want to listen to every episode, you can find them on your podcast platforms, Go to Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, iHeart, wherever you get your podcasts. You can just find Tennis Channel Inside In by searching for it. Subscribe, leave a rating or a review. When you subscribe, you will get automatically downloaded episodes to your listening device, your phone. It is that simple. And you can also find us on YouTube. Most of these episodes are on there in the video form. Just go to the Tennis Channel YouTube and search the Tennis Channel Inside In playlist for most of these episodes in their video form. Another cool wrinkle as we expand the coverage and the production value of the podcast network. And I'm just honored to be a part of it. It's been a great year. We still have a few weeks left. ATP Paris Masters and the WTA Finals from Cancun next week. We're on the race to Torrent on the men's side. We've got the Davis Cup and the Billie Jean King Cup coming as well. 
Strap in for an exciting final month of the tennis season. You never know what's going to happen. For Nico Pereira and Matt Futterman, my name is Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.